If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. After sitting next to the poet and painter William Blake at a dinner party one evening, Henry Crabb Robinson wondered in his diary whether Blake was, quote, artist or genius or mystic or madman. Well, today I'll be trying to untangle those contradictions with John Higgs, who's the author of William Blake vs. the World, a new biography that reveals how an eccentric man now hailed in the pantheon of British art was ignored and mocked during his lifetime, and how Blake's work is still misunderstood today. Thanks very much for joining me, John. So your new book is all about William Blake. I think if you say to most listeners in the UK, William Blake, they'll know... The words for him, Jerusalem, we've got green and pleasant land, dark satanic mills, which come from a Blake poem. They might also know tiger, tiger, burning bright. And maybe some people will know that Blake was also a painter as well as a poet. But what do we really need to remember about him other than that? Well, I think he was um, unique, basically. I don't think we've ever had anyone quite like him to be so talented on so many levels. You know, we don't have national poets who are also regarded as brilliant, brilliant artists who have their own, you know, massive retrospectives at Tate Britain. Um, uh, And we don't understand him. That's the interesting thing. He's just... He saw the world in a way that is so different to how we see it 
that there's something about his work that is incredibly attractive and appealing that we all feel drawn to it, yet we're slightly scared of at the same time. A lot of people think, oh yeah, I like Blake, I love Blake, but they don't read him. They don't sort of go into him. We're a little bit sort of wary of him, which is a real shame because when you go into him, I think he's just the sort of figure that, you know, we sort of need at the the moment. There's... um, Obviously, it's a sort of very divided time. And Blake has this weird ex- uh, ability to sort of bring people from all corners of, of our society together. He's, you know, the Conservative Party will sing Jerusalem. You'll hear it at the last night at the proms. You'll hear it played by the fall. You'll hear it at the Women's Institute. You'll hear it by the English cricket team. You know, he he, he unites the left and the right. He unites the, the establishment and the, the avant-garde. And also, weirdly, he, he unites atheists and those who are religious and, and spiritually inclined. There's just no one in our in our history, in our culture, who has this ability to draw us all together like this. Speaking about that popularity there that you mentioned, obviously there was a, there was a massive William Blake exhibition in 2019 at the Tate, and it, it was hugely successful. There's something about Blake's work, as you say, that clearly speaks to us today, but what do you think that that is? It's, he had... Um, a way of seeing the world which we recognise as different to ours and it has it has different values behind it. And we kind of feel that we've, we've lost something, that we're missing something and that maybe he had the clue. Uh, in, there's a quote from Jerusalem on a new grave marker that's on his, his grave in Bunhill Fields and it says, I give you the end of a piece of string, only wind it into a ball, it will lead you into heaven's gate built in Jerusalem's wall. He's like offering us. He's offering us a sort of a, a, a line into, into a sort of a more numinous place. So you start the book with the reflections of a guy called Henry Crabb Robinson who met Blake and he wrote in his diary that he wasn't sure if Blake was artist or genius or mystic or madman, which I mean is, is very intriguing, isn't it? Is that what you're trying to get to the bottom of in this biography? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm trying to understand his mind more so than a straight biography or more than a straight analysis of his poetry or his his paintings. Um, I'm I'm trying to understand how he saw the world. Um, And we're in a much better position to do that now. We have a a far greater understanding of how the mind works uh, than we did, you know, 200 years ago. Um, And so when he talks of his visions, we, we understand that he was certainly... Uh, neuro, he was not neurotypical. I think is the phrase <laughs> that that is used. But we we sort of have ways in now to sort of understand what he was experiencing and, and and what he was sort of seeing. I mean, I called the book William Blake versus the World because most of the way his story is told is very much the world versus William Blake. You know, he was ignored, he was mocked, he was seen as a madman. He died penniless in a pauper's grave. He was this sort of forgotten figure, and on a sort of material level you know, on, on, on the worlds of, you know, uh, of, of wealth and finance and success. You know, he was utterly defeated by the world. But he was he was working on a completely different territory to that. You know, the, the, the story of William Blake versus the world is a very different story to the world versus William Blake, I think. So you mentioned there the fact that Blake had this completely left-of-field worldview, really. And I think that that is really important to understand if you're going to look at any of his paintings or read any of his poems, because it really informed the work that he made, didn't it? So what can you tell us about Blake's belief system, as it were? 
Well, there's there's so many different aspects to it. There's the, the political, there's the sexual, there's the spiritual, there's the religious. There's all these different sort of ways in, and you have to sort of get grasp um, each of them um, to sort of see how they all sort of cohere as, as a whole. So Blake saw himself as a Christian, but his views were not necessarily in alignment with most churchgoers at the time, I think it's fair to say. So how would you describe this kind of religious aspect of his worldview and maybe how that fed into politics as well? Yes, you're right. He absolutely saw himself as a Christian. He was not a person who went to uh, church in any way. Um, he wasn't a person who sort of believed the doctrines of the church, but he he believed uh, in Christ, essentially, in this, this, this uh, inner, inner light of Christ, except what he was talking about really was the imagination. He saw the human imagination as this divine force that sort of flooded into this sort of finite, closed, limited material sort of world. Uh, and that was our saviour. He would talk about, you know, people who, who aren't painters or artists or architects, they're not Christian. You know, Christ and his disciples were all artists as he saw it. It was it was the, the act of um, creating, of, of bringing something new into the world. That was really what religion was about for him. Um, so he's he's very critical um, of priests and priestcrafts. Um, he talks of priests in black gowns with doing their rounds and binding in brass my joys and desires. He sees them very much as crushing the the, the human spirit. Uh, he he refers to God as Nobo Daddy, which is a, a really sort of sort of current sounding sort of nihilism, Nobo Daddy. Um, so as you know. There's a lot more secular 21st century people will agree with in, in what he says. He saw all gods and angels and demons and things as being within us. Everything was within us. It wasn't God outside. We created them all ourselves. You know, uh, uh, all deities reside in the human breast, as he said, um, which really changes uh, uh, how you see religion in a very sort of profound way. I mean, we might not... Um, say, believe in hell these days. We don't believe that hell is a real place that exists and it's out there in, in some, some strange realm that we might be sent to. Very few people actually believe that. But for Blake, hell was an internal state. We create uh, a, our own hell inside us when we cut ourselves off from people and, and hide our light. And even though we might not believe in hell, we've probably met someone who is living in hell. And if you accept that you know someone who, who may be living in hell, then that opens the idea that, are the people who are living in paradise. All, the, all this was 100 years before Freud and Jung and our, our current understanding of, of psychology. So that's really how you should understand and, and sort of look at his work and a real examination of, of what goes on inside us. It, it's some huge ideas that Blake is grappling with here. Do you see it as something that is coherent? Is it a coherent set of beliefs when you put it all together or is it a hodgepodge of different um, aspects? It's surprisingly coherent, I think. It's, uh, no one's making any claim that anyone understands it all and it all fits together perfectly and there's no contradictions. He's much more um, playful than, than the sort of thinker who comes up with a, a rigid, fixed system of how to understand the world. He's very much exploring how different part of ourselves, different energies within ourselves, uh, clash and the dynamics between, uh, you know, uh, uh, countries, which is a, is a, a big, important uh, idea in, in his thought. Um, and yet, surprisingly, it does fit together quite well. It, do, it does come to, once you've 
found a few keys to unlock what he's talking about. Um, there is a worldview there that I think is still valuable and useful here in the 21st century. So at the time that Blake was writing, how dangerous was it to be throwing ideas out there around religion and, say, priests corrupting people? It was a very, very paranoid time. And it was certainly politically uh, very dangerous. Uh, There's a story that uh, he knew Tom Paine well enough to warn him to leave the country before he was arrested. Um, uh, Obviously, the French Revolution uh, had had sort of... uh, huge repercussions around how uh, governments and things perceived the people below them. And and the British establishment was extremely scared and paranoid that there was going to be an uprising here. Uh, and, and so you get um, examples like when Blake was living in Felpham uh, in, in the early 1800s, uh, and he found a, a soldier, a guy called Jack Schofield, in his, in his garden. Uh, and he got into an argument with him and he, he sort of marched him down the street and sort of forced him uh, back to, to where he was billeted. Uh, and the, the, sh- the soldier claimed that Blake had been saying, damn the king and damn all his soldiers. This was, this was sedition. This, he could have been hanged for this. And there was a huge trial that really weighed on him over many years and really was uh, very damning for his 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 mental health in many ways. It was a risky, strange time. It, it's strange, isn't it, that um, with all the kind of radical um, revolutionary work that Blake was making, the stuff that he actually got in trouble for was an argument on the street. In, ma- in many ways, he just wasn't famous enough to to get into trouble. He was he was ignored so much during his life uh, and looked down upon a bit. Uh, he saw, he, he went to the Royal Academy and some of his friends and his peers went on to become, to do great things uh, uh, and he didn't. And he, he was very much sort of um, seen as difficult or mad or strange. So people's kind of left him alone a little bit. Um, so his kind of lack of success in life Do you think that was more due to the fact that he was a difficult personality to engage with rather than the fact that people didn't really understand or appreciate his work? I think it was mainly that they didn't understand his work. Uh, It was it was such a different way of thinking to what they were used to. Um, And that's what gradually made him more of a difficult and and, uh, harder person to sort of work with. Um, His at the core of his philosophy, there is a disagreement with one of the most central ideas in in Western thought, uh, which comes from, well, uh, before Plato, really, the idea that the the mind and matter are two separate things. Uh, And um, it was sort of picked up by Christianity, and it's at the core of the great universities of the time, Oxford and Cambridge. And for those people who had gone through that form of education, it was almost impossible to understand what he was talking about because he differed on such a fundamental level that they were blind to it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't quite understand him at all. He didn't help himself. He didn't really try to explain himself very well. He'd often launched into works and poems and things, assuming that as long as he knew what he was talking about, then everyone else should be able to follow. You know, he was not, he was not a, a reader-friendly writer in, in many ways. Um, it is a real shame because he had some great points to make. Um, you mentioned earlier about the fact that Blake had visions, and I just want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, so how did he experience 
these visions? Or how did he describe his experience of these visions? Were they something threatening to him or were they pretty, you know, banal? And how did they influence his work as well? They were wonderful for him. They, they, were, they were a real joy. He, he felt blessed and honoured to have them. Uh, one of the first uh, was about eight years old when he walked down to Peckham Rye, and which is all, you know, wild open fields and everything at that time. And he was sitting down, he looked up at this tree on every branch was an angel. This, this tree was spangled with angels. And it was just such a glorious sight. And, you know, he went home and he told his parents and they, they didn't believe him. They thought he was lying. His father was going to beat him. Uh, and that's when he realised that, you know, other people didn't see the world how he did. But he never um, thought the way he saw the world was wrong. He thought, you know, it was a skill that you could develop uh, and to do so was better than not doing it. And people who didn't see the world and didn't see angels and and, uh, and spiritual figures were missing out. They, they were, he had something that other people didn't. And his wife utterly believed him. We, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really interesting field of research at the moment uh, about what's called uh, hyperphantasia and aphantasia. These are uh, the study of the, the mind's eye, um, how, what we see when we close our eyes and we imagine something. Um, if you were to close your eyes and, say, imagine a cow, uh, what happened in your head would be very different between different people. Most people would sort of see something vaguely cow-like or something like that. A lot of people see absolutely nothing at all. They have a condition called aphantasia, uh, which is you have no mind's eye at all. Um, uh, and a lot of people that say Pixar are aphantasic. It's 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 really interesting where it's sort of linked to sort of vi- visual artistry. So they can't they can't see something in their head. They have to physically create it on a computer or on canvas or, or something like that. But at the opposite end of the scale, there's hyperphantasia. Now, this this is it seems to be even rarer, but it's like if you were to ask someone with hyperphantasia to close their eyes and imagine a cow, there would be a cow there. They would smell the cow. They would feel the heat from its breath, the, the smell of its uh, its hide. It would be so so vivid. There'd be very little difference between eyes open and eyes closed, uh, and it seems very likely that Blake was hyperphantasic. He always talked about how he always saw in vision everything he painted, everything he, he was uh, in, in front of his mind's eye. Um, you have examples where he was drawing this this horrible uh, figure called the ghost of a flea. Oh, yeah, which is incrededly haunting. It's incredibly creepy. And there's a sketch he was doing for someone, and he was seeing the ghost of a flea in his mind's eye, but the, the, the flea moved, and so he had to stop. And had to redraw the face differently because the, it had moved that way. It wasn't that, um, you know, it was he was just imagining this face. It was he was seeing what he sort of visually saw. And people who are hyperphantasic, um, they they it affects them in really interesting ways. They, they they daydream a lot more, but they also tend to um, have a lot of social conscience. Um, I, in the book, I talked to an artist called Claire Dudney, uh, and she's hyperphantasic. And, you know, she talks about how she was reading a book on a train when someone got a nail uh, in their foot on the story. And because they're hyperphantasic, it was so visual to them and visceral that they almost passed out. They just, you just can't sort of handle it and handle it. Uh, and when you see Blake's mind working in these ways, you understand why a lot about his politics, about how furious he was about, say, child chimney sweeps, which was you know one of the big issues at, at the time. Because uh, most people can talk about child chimney sweeps fairly, sort of calmly and rationally, but 
if you see in your mind's eye these these small children in these 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 you know these horrible conditions there's this sort of the choking um coal dust the the cramp confined conditions that they're sort of put into uh of course you're going to be angry. Of course you're going to be furious. Of course you're going to say it's sort of not acceptable. Um, so there's a, there is a, a a sort of a clear correlation, I think, between the sort of hyper-visual imagination of the way his mind worked uh, and the, the strength and sort of anger um, and, and uh, behind his politics. You mentioned there about the idea in Hyperfantasia that, that you could have smell and sight and sound all intermingled. And I don't know whether there's any parallel between that and the way that uh, Blake kind of approached his art in that he obviously was a poet, but he was also a visual artist. Did he see a division between those two fields or did he see them all as part of the same thing? Yeah, this is really interesting. He saw them all as part of the same thing. In a way, we're sort of vaguely uh, familiar with now in the world of multimedia or you know graphic novels where there's, there's a story and there's pictures at, at the same time. But it was, it was so uh, unusual and rare at the time for him to conceive of a, a creative work that is, um, that is visual, that is a, 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 an illustration, that is a poem, that is a song at the same time, which he had music, which unfortunately has been lost uh, to us for some things. He, he, he saw all these different aspects of, 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 of creative expression as part of the same, uh, same visual sort of thing. Uh, and there was just no one like it. And there still isn't really. There still isn't. He was quite open about the fact that he had these visions and that they informed this worldview that was behind his art. How did people respond to that at the time? Not well, generally. Not well. I mean, his, his friends his friends certainly loved him, but he was very easy to uh, dismiss for artists and art critics. And there was a sort of a, a, a class of gentlemen uh, who had... A stranglehold on the arts is probably putting it a bit strong, but it, it was um, it, it was it was not a world that anyone could sort of break into. Um, and you see this in the one review he got. He held an exhibition in eighteen oh nine, I think it was, um, above his brother's shop, um, and there was one review uh, by a guy I think called Lee Hunt. And it's so patronising and it's so damning. And he refers to Blake as an unfortunate lunatic uh, who's only prevented from being incarcerated by his personal inoffensiveness. You know, he's, he's just he's, he's, he's beneath them. And his, the idea that Blake saw himself as such a great artist, which he, really, he did and he was very loud about, um, he was just, you know, dismissed and mocked. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In the 18th century, English artists did not come up with images like that. It's so from nowhere, you know. It, it's just a beautiful piece of design. But the atmosphere to it is, is um, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. 
Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Something that you you talk about in the book, which I found really interesting, was this idea that after Blake's death, critics wanted to kind of diminish or downplay the fact that of his quote madness because that would in some way kind of undermine the power and the importance of his work yes i think so so i'm uh, particularly sort of academics and scholars in the 20th century have often sort of tried to uh play this down or to dismiss the idea that he was mad uh because when you look at his work, it's very easy to go, well, he was mad, so I, I really wasted my time sort of looking at this. There's a, a, a desire to go, no, no, look closer, to read it closer, understand it. It contrasts uh, with the um, the legacy of Vincent van Gogh, for example, who everyone accepts that he had mental health problems, uh, and they sort of add to his story. They sort of, they're sort of, they're all part of, of, of the bigger picture of his work. Um, it's, it's quite clear that particularly in the early uh, 1800s, his mental health was not in a good way. And there was a very sort of paranoid aspect to a lot of the things he said. And uh, he, w- he would um, start feuds and fights which, with different artists, which were very one-sided. Um, he would be attacking someone for reasons that the person didn't never really kind of understood and, and, and didn't don't seem to make much sense when we go back and look at the letters at the time and things like that. It does seem that... Um, uh, he was in in, in, a, in a bad way in many ways at, at this point. So just on a personal level um, with Blake, there's, there's a lot to kind of grapple with here as a biographer because you say he was he had a lot of friends and he was quite personally inoffensive. But then on the other hand, we have this, this paranoia and this ability to start fights. So, you know, if we turned up to a dinner party and we sat next to William Blake, what kind of man would we encounter? A, a lot would depend at what time in his life. Uh, this was. I mean, I, st- I start the book with him at a dinner party towards the end of his life, uh, when uh, everyone just sort of falls for him. He's he's just he's just lovely. He's just he's childlike and he's sort of kind and such a sparkle to his eyes and he says beautiful things um, and he seems to see the world in a way that that's uh, left him at peace uh, and it's very very appealing. When he was a young man, he would attend, not very often, he would attend the occasional sort of uh, artist circle sort of gathering. And uh, people would go to these events. Uh, Joseph Johnson, the um, the radical publisher uh, who he worked for, would hold these uh, meals with very simple food. But it would be Tom Paine, it would be Mary Wollstonecraft, it would be all these wonderful, interesting people. And the debate would be um, stimulating. And, and a lot of what was talked about there has, has sort of fed into the the age of enlightenment and and how we sort of see the world 
Blake didn't go to sort of learn how to see the world. He already knew how to see the world. He had no interest in, in trying to understand how things should be. He knew them. So he was, um, he was uh, stubborn and, um, and uh, uh, you know, prickly in, in, in certain ways. Um, and then, and then, certainly in sort of middle age, when the sort of the the paranoia sort of crept in, uh, he seemed to be much more of a, a, a lonely figure at, at that sort of point. He's, his wife Catherine was always there for him, so he he always had this sort of um, this this home, this this loving um, uh, core of his life that he could go back to. Um, that uh, if he hadn't had that, you know, it would God knows where it would have gone, and and. As we move into sort of the 1820s, he's clearly he sort of worked through a lot of his problems. I think by doing his sort of great masterwork, Jerusalem, uh, which was such a um, uh, an analysis of, of the workings of his own sort of mind, it's, it feels like prototherapy in some ways to me. Uh, so that he sort of came out um, in a positive way. He could so easily have come out sort of a nihilistic, sort of pessimistic, bitter. He could easily have come out bitter, and he, he didn't. You know, he, he he came out singing and, and full of joy at the end of his life. You mentioned that Blake's work can be quite unnerving, and I would I would terms of some of it kind of creepy and quite eerie and dark. Um, what do you think was behind that? What was playing into it? Well, it's very gothic. It's um, it's there's always a sense of you know the 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 great weight of the past pressing down on on the, on the present moment um it's not illustrations of our world it's illustrations of the internal states of of him uh, uh and there's a, there's a sense of melodrama about it and his language is all very sort of rich and um uh hysterical's probably pushing it a bit too far but he's 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 certainly manic if uh, you could imagine um if it was modern day there'd be a lot of caps and uh, uh exclamation mark it's very high stakes isn't it it's very very high stakes but it was the, the you know the state of his soul was at, at, at stake you know that it was it, it should be high stakes you know it's it's we have this brief period on earth and our our mind or our soul, if you prefer, you know, uh, can be wretched or it, it can be just blissful. You know, it, it matters, these these things, as much as we might like to dismiss them. And in this kind of master worldview that he created in his work, there there were some, some recurring characters, I guess you could say. Um, what could you tell us about some of those? Yeah, he basically created his own mythology from about the 1790s onwards. Um, in his early work, he'd refer to Greek mythology or biblical. Well, he, he always loved biblical stories. He always go back to biblical stories. But while most artists kept to those sort of, you know, um, set worlds, um, he created an entirely new one um, with characters like Urizen and Orc and Loss um, that he never really introduced he never really explained who they were it's just when you look at his entire body of work together and sort of see how they all fit and work out you realize that um it's he's basically divided his own mind or everyone's mind into four different aspects to see how they interact and then see the dynamics between them so uh Eurizen, his most, most significant important character He's essentially our left brain. He's he's a uh, he's rational. Uh, he's um, he's he frames 
the outside world is this sort of small finite model and utterly believes in it and believes he's god of that sort of world he's he's um he's that sort of cold rational uh, part of ourselves whereas uh you know loss is is creativity creativity in action and uh, uh and he's puts them together into these these great battles uh that, that form the stories of his work and there's great sort of psychological insights come out of out of doing so we've spoken about how blake was barely reviewed he wasn't really recognized for his work in his time um he was never really financially successful from from being an artist and then we and then we fast forward to 2019 and we've got you know a sellout exhibition of his work that um is blasted all over all the papers what happens between those two things oh well it was a slow process um certainly in the 19th century very little happened essentially there was there was a, a biography fortunately for us a biography was written uh, published in 1863 by alexander gilchrist and it was called the life of william blake picter uh, ignotus which was latin for unknown artist that was that is a biography of someone you've never heard of this unknown artist uh and it's a fantastic book because his friends towards the end of his life were still alive so he's able to that's how we get the that most of our knowledge uh, about him. Uh, a few bits of poetry would appear in, in uh, Victorian anthologies, things that felt uh, to the editor to be quite patriotic. Often, he really wasn't quite grasping the, the, uh, the context of, of what those words were about. Uh, but that's how things like um, the lines we now know as the hymn Jerusalem were sort of taken out of context, out of the preface to Blake's poem Milton. And there's a standalone piece of work. Uh, and then in World War One. Uh, they added music was added to it by by Parry, and he gave the um, copyright to the women's suffrage movement, and it so it had that sort of radical sort of uh, feeling feeling to it. Then um, uh, awareness of him started to grow through this sort of time. Uh, people were looking at his work. Uh, the uh, pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and other artistic movements sort of really cling to him. A, a bunch of the early Romantic uh, uh, poets would also sort of talk about him. Uh, but it was in this 1960s, really, that he sort of really hit home um, and sort of made sense to this sort of this new uh, uh, post-war generation who's, who very much saw themselves of individualist and wanted to sort of cast off authority and sexually liberated, uh, but wanting a, a spiritual aspect to, to the world. And they looked at Blake and they just got everything they, they'd ever dreamed of. I mean, Allen Ginsberg was a, a, a major factor in this. Uh, Ginsberg had a, a vision himself after reading Blake's poetry that turned him into a poet and that lies at the heart of every, everything he did. Um, uh, Aldous Huxley, when he wrote The Doors of Perception, he took that phrase from Blake to talk about his experience with mescaline. Uh, and then bands like The Doors would take that from Aldous Huxley. So Blake was very much in the counterculture in the in the 1960s. And they tended to see uh, the aspect of him that was about individualism um, and, and, and fitted with the with how they saw the world at that time when we look at it now in the 21st century when we're we sort of moved a bit beyond individualism and we much more see ourselves as part of a network or as, as, as part of a sea of relationships we find there's a lot in blake that talks on those sort of levels he says the bird a nest the spider a web mankind friendship man lives in his relationships that's that's what um uh that's what life's about, essentially. There's, there's, there's a lot about forgiveness. And this ties into his 
his belief in the importance of Christianity, um, that we have to forgive, otherwise we create our own prisons of resentment, uh, the mind-forged manacles that sort of trap us. Um, uh, so every generation, as we keep looking at him through our own eyes, we're seeing more and more. And it's sort of a picture that's building and building and building. And no one thinks we've anywhere near, you know, having a, a overall understanding of his yet. But we know that we, what we've got is so... Um, useful and extraordinary and rewarding that, you know, we keep sort of digging, we keep going back to his work and we, we keep understanding it afresh. And there's a, this weird aspect that no matter what your interests are, no matter what baggage you take to examining Blake, you always find something that, that's useful to you. He was so encompassing. It was like he could see the entirety of, of you know, the world from an outside perspective um, and he missed nothing out. I, mean, I always loved the fact that the most used word in all his works, apart from, you know, the and is um, all. All is the most used word. It's it's so inclusive and so, and so sort of useful. And it's taken us, you know, 200 years to get the level of understanding that we, that we have at the moment. Um, but, you know, it's just all signs say we should just keep going and see what else we find in there. It's fascinating, isn't it, as you say there, to, to see how some of Blake's work has kind of taken on a whole life of its own, and I'm thinking primarily of Jerusalem, that it's become so divorced from its original context. What are some of the other ways um, that Blake's work has been misinterpreted or misunderstood or understood in a way that really would not have been the intended? Yeah, it's it's fascinating because it's um, it seems that every time the establishment, in the I'd use that phrase in the broader sense, uh, goes, oh, we'll use a bit of Blake, they get him so wrong that it's 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 beyond ironic. It's, it's, it's Jerusalem is the obvious uh, example. Uh, those words and did those feet in ancient times that we all know, and the music is is so important to that, and we all it touches us in, in an important way. Uh, it's the it is the unofficial English national anthem, but it was very much in context from the preface to his poem Milton, it was very, very angry. It was this very, very angry rant. The paragraph before starts up, uh, rise up, uh, O men of the new age. Uh, And he condemns what he calls the hirelings of the court, uh, the universities. The British establishment, as he portrays them, are just... um, Wrong. They just don't get it. They just don't understand it. He, he, they, they parrot what they learned at university, but they have no inspiration to them. They have no sort of divine spark to them. They've lost what matters. Uh, and the whole, uh, what is a hymn now, is a cry to sort of overthrow our idiot rulers and the stupid schools that they came from. And so when you get, you know, Eton sing Jerusalem and, and pr- private schools sing Jerusalem, they're really singing about burn these places down it's such it's 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 not that they've just got it slightly wrong it's just like so wrong that it's it's hard to sort of um that it's funny uh and another example is you talked about the fantastic fantastic exhibition that the tate did uh, at the end of 2019 which had about a quarter of a million visitors and over 300 works and it was once in a lifetime uh, it's wonderful sort of thing but to, to promote it they um they projected his painting of uh, a figure called Eurizen uh, onto the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And Eurizen, um, he's got this beard and hair that's been blown in this scale, and he's sort of leaning out of this orb with this giant golden compass sort of creating the world. And, it, and you, you might go, oh, that must be God. That looks like God. 
It's Satan. Urizen is Satan, as he, he describes it. And so to project Satan um, onto the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, it, you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, it's Satan as Blake defined Satan. So there's there's a whole other argument to go into there. There's a whole lot of interesting, inter- interesting things. But yeah, because he sees the world so differently. When people sort of pick at things that they're drawn to, uh, it, it's... It's almost like there's a tricksterish element to him that you know it's it, you know to get it wrong once is fine, but to, when it happens every time he's sort of used, you know it's, it is quite funny. I think for my final question, I'm going to pose a, a slight challenge to you, uh, which is, um, I wonder if you could nominate three of Blake's works that personally are your favourites that you would urge everyone to seek out if they're able to. I would first say the Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Uh, which uh, was a, a small book he wrote in the 1790s, really because he was arguing with a, 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 a Swedish mystic called Swedenborg. He's trying to explain why Swedenborg was wrong. But by doing so, he basically set out how he sees the world in this short and as punchy sort of way as possible. It has this great section called The Proverbs of Hell. He thought he thought Swedenborg was too enamoured of the angels. Uh, he didn't. He needed to understand the, the, the demons as well. So he put all the proverbs that he heard from hell in this great section. And it's not long and it's, um, it's you know, it's dense. But there's such a, it's such an important clue to his worldview uh, that, that I would definitely recommend The Marriage of Heaven and Hell to sort of anyone. Um, I think the painting of Newton, uh, again, because it unlocks so much of how he saw the world. People may know this painting of Newton. He's sort of like a, 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 he's this naked figure, like a Greek god with blonde hair. He sort of appears to be under the ocean or in a cave or something. Um, it's this really strange, organic sort of world that he's in. But if you look, you know, it's, you know, he's not wet, his hair's not wet. He's, he's focused down on this scroll, this piece of paper, with it, again, with a compass, because uh, he represents this character, Eurizen. And all he can see is this circle that he's drawing. He has no concept of the rich, organic sort of world all around him. He only can see this sort of rational mental construction that he's, he's sort of making. Um, and it's, so, it's such a key idea in Blake's thinking. It's sort of, um, yeah, you, you, can think about, you can think about his painting of Newton for a long time, believe me. There's a lot going in on there. Yeah, a whole bunch of things are flashing in front of my mind. There is one uh, painting... Um, of two angels uh, above the the, the lying uh, uh, body of Christ, and their 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 wings just sweep up, and they just sort of touch each other's wings, and there's this this elegant symmetry to it, and it's just a glimpse of another world. It's such it's such a you know in the 18th century English artists did not come up with images like that. It's so from nowhere, you know. It, it's just a beautiful piece of design, but the atmosphere to it is is um, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Yeah, I think I'd, those three, and if I could have another hundred as well, that would be nice. That was John Higgs. His book, William Blake versus the World, is available now, published by Orion. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. 
We'll be back on Friday when Leah Garrett will be speaking about the secret Jewish commandos who helped defeat the Nazis. (laughs) 